0: sorry that we uh, didn't have the words, but uh, I know that uh, amazing thing after we've gone through all this pandemic thing is that you you learn that being dependent on technology is really not all that fun, uh, because uh, just when you think you got it figured out, no, so I'm just not the, the guy to, oh yeah, I know how to figure all that out, so I, I appreciate our, our praise team, and our, our tech team, and they've they did such a great job. And then, you know, it's like, okay, so Sunday morning when everybody's looking, then it just leaps you know. That's true. That happens. We just want to welcome you here. I extend a special welcome to you who are in person and online. If uh, you are here and you're a guest, this is your first time with us, in, you have, if you have a bulletin, if you don't, they're on the welcome table as you come in. But if you uh, take that and open it up, there's a little extra flap on the bulletin. We'd sure appreciate it if you'd fill that out. And then we'd have a little record of your attendance and we would also have a a prayer request or you have something you want to share with us, we'd be glad to hear from you. And then we'd love to be in contact with you more personally than just at church, if that's possible, if you're interested in that. And what you'll do with that is you'll tear it off and then you'll put it in, uh, there's a box on the welcome table as you leave and that's for the offering, and for our guests, it's for your little slip. So we're grateful for you being here. A couple of announcements, actually two or three that I have for you. Uh, we're starting Awana this next week. Uh, so Wednesday, Awana starts at 5.30 with a meal. And then Awana gets kicked off. Also, our junior and senior high youth ministries also have a men's Bible study and a women's Bible study. And all that stuff is in the bulletin or online, so you can take note of that. But we are in need of some assistance, some helpers. So if you're interested in helping with Awana, Mary has a table as you leave the sanctuary. She'd be glad to talk to you about that. So we sure appreciate that. Also, want to make you aware of that there is a, a, a party uh, coming up sometime. I don't know. I haven't looked at the date, but there's a sign up sheet out on the welcome table for it's called Shins, uh, just a party. Okay. So if you're interested in coming to the party out at uh, Bob and Debbie's place out in uh, rural Carlisle, it should be a good time. But you sign up there and we'll know how many are going to come. So sure appreciate that. Also, I also, the last thing that I want to call your attention to is immediately after the service, well, actually, two things immediately after the service, This section over here, we're going to deconstruct and then reconstruct. Uh, Before COVID hit, we had tables set up uh, like the tables that are here for kind of a more casual approach to uh, joining the worship service. You could sit at a table if you had your coffee, you could drink your coffee or whatever. But it's also multi-purpose because we use it during Awana. So our listeners and our students are over there and they have their listeners. So we need help taking the chairs out and putting the tables back in. So if you would be willing to help us out, uh, many hands make light work, we'd appreciate that. And then also, uh, if you would be interested in praying with and for our Haiti mission team, that will be in the fellowship hall. Uh, what time do you usually start, Norb? 10 to, 10 to 12. 10 to 12. So that will be that time. Okay, great. So that's all the... A multitude of announcements. Those who know me well know that I really don't like to make announcements that well uh, much, and I figure that the people who don't read don't listen. So uh, most of it's most of it's in the bulletin or uh, there. So it's like, well, if you got it, all right. Let's pray. I need I need to pray. Get focused here, Father. Uh, I thank you that even though we 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 tried to, to learn a song that wasn't very familiar with us, uh, the words, I hope, would be precious to us. Uh, the refrain, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, Lord save now. And I ask now that you would turn our hearts and our minds to the, the, the worship of Almighty God to you. As we look into your precious word, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that the word of God would have the weight that it should in our lives and that you would accomplish your purposes in us and through us for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name, amen. When uh, golf legend Tiger Woods kind of took a break from golf in uh, 2014 to 2017 he did so because he had a series of back surgeries but when he returned oh I'm sorry see again Sunday school you kids you are dismissed all right if you're up through fifth grade uh, you're dismissed all right it's great glad things are going really smooth this morning okay golf legend Tiger Woods returned to golf in 2018 after a hiatus with back surgeries in 2014 to 2017. And when he did so, he did so for a couple of a couple of things I think were on his mind. First of all, he wanted to confront his critics who would say that his game was not quite up up to the championship level. And so he wanted to uh, prove to them that he wanted to confront them and say, yeah, my game is up to par. But also he wanted to say that, he wanted to confirm in his own mind that, yeah, I still am one of the greatest PGA golfers of all time. On a much grander scale, on a much more significant scale, our king, the Lord Jesus, when he entered Jerusalem, wanted to confront those who were disparaging of him. And he also wanted to confirm to them his royal identity as as the king. And it's this passage in Matthew chapter 21 that comes on the heels of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he's coming into Jerusalem and they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David, save now. But when he comes into the Jerusalem, he goes, first of all, into the temple. Not to a palace, not to some place of political prominence, but into the temple. And I think he came into the temple to, first of all, to confront his critics and then to confirm his true identity as the, the royal king of kings and lord of lords in order to confront those who are outwardly religious but not truly righteous and to confirm his identity. So this morning in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 22, we see three examples of Jesus' divine authority, each that confront religious hypocrisy and confirm him as the King of glory who alone is worthy of our worship. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21 or if you have it on your phone or a device or if you want to reach under the seat in front of you, one of those seats in front of you should have a Bible in it. And I'm going to read the text, Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And he said to them, do you, they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now the morning, in the morning when he returned to the city he became hungry and seeing a lone fig tree by the road he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. At once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. We see, I see, maybe you don't, but I see, and we'll tease it out, hopefully, at least three examples, demonstrations of Jesus' divine authority that. Serve to confront this religious hypocrisy and confirm who he is as the royal king of kings and lord of lords. And the first one that we encounter is that by cleansing the temple, our holy king confronts the irreverent. The irreverent. And the, confirmation, uh, the, the, the confrontation takes place in a couple of stages. First of all, these irreverent people are expelled. It says in verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple because he wasn't there as a political, military, economic, or social reformer. So he went into the place of worship, not the place of politics. And so he entered the temple because he was interested in establishing a kingdom of people who would put their faith or their trust in him to save them from their sins. So that's why he went into the temple. And I kind of emphasize it when I read through it, but you see how many times it refers, it says, in the temple, in the temple. It's happening in the temple, the place of worship. And there it was that he attacked the heart of the nation of Israel's problem. What was their problem? He was confronting the corruption in their worship. In Matthew, this is the first time we find him in the temple. In Jerusalem, and the first thing he does is, whammo! He's confronting the corruption of their worship. He he attacked it. See, the Passover brought a bunch of people in, people from all over Israel and, and places to worship God, to remember what God had done when He delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. Brought proselytes, Jew uh, uh, Gentiles who had converted to, to Judaism, and. It was a big celebration. It's kind of like in Christianity, you know, Christmas and Easter. You you get a bunch of people that show up that may not be there any other time. But they're there on Christmas and Easter somehow to get their, you know, God's blessing on their life because they showed up a couple of times a year uh, to pay homage to God. And so that's what they're they're doing here. Now, despite its size, the temple was like 35 football fields. I mean, this is a huge, massive structure. Okay? But despite it, what do we see? We see chaos. And we see the place is jam-packed with stuff going on. It was bustling. The outer court, which was a separate area, there were like different courts. There was a court of the Gentiles, and then there was another court, and then there was a court, inner court. So there's all these different courts, but the outer court was for the Gentiles. And this place was, was where the converts to Judaism were intended to worship. Okay? That was a place provided for them so that they could worship. But what was going on? Buying and selling of goods. They were selling of animals, and they were selling for sacrifice. They're selling wine and oil, and they were changing money. There was money being changed so that they could they could carry on this this worship. And it was the money. All this stuff was for the sacrifices and for the payment of the tax. It was necessary to take place at some point, but it was all happening in the temple. And the temple market was controlled by the high priest, and he had his minions, the the chief priests and other people, who were like the managers of the franchises, you know, so they have a little booth set over here to sell the doves, they have a booth over here to sell the oil, and a booth over here to sell the wine, booth over here to sell other animals for sacrifice, and there were some money changers over here, and they were all taking part, and the chief priest was getting his take. And all of this was required. You had to convert the money so that you could offer the sacrifice or pay the temple tax. You had to have the appropriate sacrifices. So it was all necessary, but it was being done, uh, as we see in verse twelve, for profit. And so, in righteous anger, Jesus comes in and he woo—he starts tearing up the table, just like oh, I'm not going to do it. But you know, I, could, uh, I was tempted, uh, you know, just. To, but it's then we had to clean up the mess. It's like, boom, you know, he's, he's throwing it. And so what do, we, what do we have happening? All these goods, oil and the olive oil and the wine and, and all this stuff is just scattered. The money's, you know, you can hear the money clinking along the, the stones. And then all of the people, the vendors, and all of the customers, quote, unquote, and all of the other people and all of the animals are scattered all over. The, it's chaos in the outer court. and like, who does that in church, you know? I mean, who does that in the temple? And you know, all the while, the, the high priest, the chief priest, and the temple guards are watching. And nobody's stopping him. And this is absolute holy authority on display. He is unleashing his display. And it is he, he, didn't, he didn't just clear the temple like they thought. They expected the Messiah to come in and clear the temple of all of the Trash to get rid of all the Gentiles and get rid of all the foreigners. That was what the Messiah was expected to do. What he did was he cleaned out all of the swindlers and the pretenders. Making room for the trash. Making room for the lame, as we see, and the blind, and the children, and the people really seeking God. That's what Jesus did when he came into the temple. Why did he do that? Well, we see he didn't just expel them, he exposes them. The irreverent are exposed. In verse 13, Jesus defends his actions, and he said to them, from Scripture, quoting Isaiah 56, verse 7, he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. You know, he didn't finish it, but not some sort of a flea market. Not some sort of a farmer's market. Not some sort of a circus no, not a bingo parlor. It's supposed to be the temple of God where people worshipped Him. A place of quiet meditation, a place of contemplation, a place of proclamation of the Word of God. That's what the temple was supposed to be. A proclamation of the truth of God and Matthew doesn't include it here, but the full quote of Isaiah 56.7 says, My place My house shall be called a place of prayer for all nations. As Mark chapter 11, uh, verse, I think it's verse 17, says, that they would go to commune with God. They would go to connect with God. They'd go to interact with God and worship him. Instead, they were making it, and now he quotes another Old Testament verse in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, they're making it a robber's den, a den of robbers which was an indictment against the people of Israel back in Jeremiah's day who were abusing God and not worshiping him, and thus they went into Babylonian captivity. But now he's bringing it forward and saying, this applies to you, to the contemporaries of Jesus, who were irreverently would soothe, and I think this is the heart of the matter, they, they soothed, soothed their guilty consciences through religious activity Devoid of spiritual sincerity while they're still living in sin. Playing the part. This is what was at the heart of what Jesus was there. They, didn't, they had not surrendered their hearts and their souls to God and were coming in humility to worship Him. Oh no, they're playing the part. And that's what He's upset with, I believe. And Christ's reward for their disobedience and their disingenuous worship was, I'm tearing up the place. I'm sick of it. I'm done with you. You know. And so he was mad. And so he spoke with biblical authority to confirm and to confront their irreverence. And their irreverence was in the form of this profiteering, as I briefly alluded to. And see, there's no reverence for God in their carrying out these temple duties. No. Or the religious leaders over them who were profiting from it. They were praying on the unsuspecting and the needy. In the temple. You know, They didn't have the, 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 the gall to do it outside. They, they just went inside the temple and made it a, a charade. Inside the temple. See, these guys were charging. And all this stuff was necessary. They were charging up to ten times what it cost. And the money changers were had like a twenty-five percent upcharge. You know, I don't know if you ever changed money, a currency overseas. Uh, it's like you're kind of like, well, I, I, I mean, I don't do exchange rates really well. You know, and the more numbers you get, like if you go to other countries where the dollar is highly valued, and it's like I remember the last change it was like one dollar equals two hundred of you know. So it's like. Whoa, I mean, you get too many zeros and I'm get lost. And so they were up charges of 25 percent. It's kind of like going to the state fair and you know, trying to buy a hot dog for six dollars. You know? I wouldn't give you a plug nickel for a hot dog, and then they, they want to give you six bucks, or five dollars at a ball game for a, for a bottle of water. For the life of me, I don't know why we buy bottled water in the United States. I buy bottled water when I'm in Haiti. I buy bottled water when I'm in another third world country. But for Pete's sake, you can go to any tap and get water that's not going to kill you. Sorry. Calm down, Steve. It's like, you know, they got water fountains. At least we still do. State fair, I found water fountains. You know, I kept looking around. I said, I'm going to get a water fountain somewhere where I'd buy of dehydration. Uh, but you go, they gouge you. This is what they were doing in the temple of God. And the Lord has no time for this. They were making the place of prayer a place of profit while pretending to promote worship. Well, they needed the stuff to make the sacrifices. They needed stuff to make the... They were pretending and thus they were perverting their worship. It was perverse in God's, in God's eyes. And Jesus also denounced their pretending. And I mentioned this briefly. The issue, he took issue with their confidence of the many who claimed to be members of the family of God because they had done the ritual duties. But they were really living consistently in rebellion. So they had played church. You know, they'd done the right thing, but they really didn't care about their hearts. Our righteous king is hard on hypocrisy. He's hard on hypocrites. Hypocrites whom, as uh, Douglas in his commentary, Sean, Sean Douglas says, are, is, is someone, a hypocrite, is someone who has no heart for God, but will do whatever is necessary to make sure the God in his life is appeased and the people in his life are pleased. Yeah, so we, 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 we worship God to please people rather than to serve and worship God. And Jesus condemned it, and he came and gave his life to rescue us from this sort of ritual religion. He wants us in a relationship with himself. And so I don't know if you're listening, you're here this morning, you're online, and you, you say, well, I don't really know about this Jesus guy, but... I wonder, I ask you, are, are you living a life that's a fake? Are you pretending, covering your wickedness with pretense of spiritual activity? Well, I've been baptized, and I, I go to church regularly, and I, I even pray. And, you know, I, I give, and I, I serve in the, in the church, and I, I've been confirmed. You know? And I'm not des- denouncing any of those things. I think they can all be very good things, but the question is, is that what's hiding us under or hiding our sin from from God? You see, are you going through the motions, the outward motions, for your own profit? Because that, that's a good image in the community. You know, I can I can get a few clients if I if I go to church and I, I walk the you know, kind of talk the talk, I can make those people come into my business, and they'll, they'll patronize my business and support me, or I can just at least ease my conscience by doing so. But there's no conviction in my heart. I really don't. I mean, it's Jesus stuff, you know. So that's nice, but I'm not, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not, a, I'm not a radical, you know. I'm not really all in for Jesus. I'm just kind of showing up to get some benefits. I want to get some benefit from, from Christ. See, the only thing you can expect or anyone can expect in that from that kind of light is judgment. Jesus is going to upset the tables. He's going to cast this from him. He doesn't want it. Jesus will have nothing to do with empty religion and ritual. But in his mercy he offers us a relationship with God through faith in himself and what he did on the cross so that we can be free from this pretense and we can enjoy eternal relationship with God the moment we put our faith or our trust in Christ and we can live with purpose and meaning. And not like, I don't know, it's kind of a charade. I remember as a kid, I went to church all the time. I went every Sunday morning. I went to Sunday school. I went to youth group. I didn't know Jesus. I heard about Christ. I heard that he was the Savior of the world. And I thought, I believed that he was the Savior of the world. But he wasn't my Savior. He wasn't my Lord. He wasn't my King. Till the moment he opened my eyes and enabled me to express my faith and my trust in him. And to turn from my sin and embrace him as my Lord and Savior. And that's what Jesus went into the temple. Because he didn't want people faking it. You can fake it, but it won't cut it. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's what, Acts 16, 31. Believe in the name of the Lord. And then, to those of us who know Jesus, you know, it's kind of a wake-up call. Eh, maybe there's a little more pretending than I should. You know, I have a relationship with God, but, you know, kind of making it look better than it is. You know, I just love coming to church on Sunday mornings. Well, how you doing? Oh, fine. Wonderful. You know, we just had the biggest fight on the way to church in, in the car, but, but I'm good. You know, love, praise Jesus. We're, we're good. Everything's great. Faking it all the way. Instead of saying, you know, week has been horrible. I don't know where God is, but I don't feel like he's walking with me. We need to examine our hearts and confess our sin. Ask ourselves, is my life, is my walk matching my talk? Are the things that I'm seeing and saying and doing, are they profaning the temple of God, which is my body, if I'm a child of God? Ask ourselves these things. When Jesus confronted the, the irreverent, he incited fear among them. He tells us that in Mark chapter 11, uh, verse 18. And I, I'm going to refer to this verse twice because... Uh, once it, it's, it's an, it, incites, it incites fear, they're afraid, but it also incites anger. <laughs> so they, they're afraid and they're angry. Their fear brought upon their indignance towards Jesus. And so they began to seek to destroy him. So first of all, by, by confronting, the, by, by cleansing the temple, our, our holy king confronts the irreverent. Secondly, by curing the disabled, our savior king, confronts the indignant, the belligerent. Jesus' authoritative confrontation takes two forms. First of all, he cures the disabled. If you look at verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. They're in the outer court. And the lame and the blind are the outcasts in society. They're not even really supposed to be in the temple. These are the people that he's supposed to cast out of the temple. And they're in the temple... And they were ignored by most people because why were they lame or blind? Well, dung, 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 John chapter 9, because either they had sinned or their parents had sinned. That was a conclusion by most upstanding Jewish people. So it was their fault. So they were ostracized. But Jesus, no, they, they couldn't come into the temple, but he cared for them and he cured them. The social outcasts, because guess what? Someone greater than the temple was there. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. And again, we've talked about the compassion of Christ. And we see in here an example to us, the outcast, the downcast, the the ones who are the ostracized. These are the people Jesus welcomed into the kingdom. Not just physically, but the spiritually outcast, the spiritually destitute, the spiritually hurting, to care for them, to provide Jesus as the only cure. For, for what they have. Something special is here. I remember watching Sam Rotman. You don't know who Sam Rotman is, probably most of you. But he's a Juilliard-trained pianist. He taught himself to play the piano on cardboard. He made a cardboard keyboard because his family was too poor to buy a piano. That's how he learned to play the piano. He went to Juilliard School of Music. I saw him perform for over an hour some of the most complicated classical music you can imagine without a single sheet of music. It was spellbinding, to say the least. Something special was in the house. When Jesus came into the temple, it paled, made Sam look like nothing. He was there, and he commanded their attention, and they didn't like it. The king has control over disease, disability, and over the knuckleheads in the temple. And so what he did, if you read verse 15, it says, but when the chief priests and the scribes, how they react to Jesus, saw the wonderful things that Jesus had done, their response was, wow, maybe we're wrong. No. It says in verse 15, They saw the wonderful things that Jesus had done, and the children who were crying in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant. Children weren't supposed to be in the temple either. Uh, So, you know, here we go. Jesus claims. He didn't just cure the disabled, but he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be deserving of their praise. And there's two activities that really triggered the religious leaders that he's confronting in this: the scribes and the Pharisees. They became indignant, it says in verse 15. First of all, the miracles he'd done. That's what it says in verse 15, right? The, the wonderful things that he had done. The miracles. He'd cured the lame and the blind right in front of them. And so they the disabled, he'd clear. And then... I can't help but think that clearing the temple didn't uh, kind of play into their animosity a little bit as well. Uh, it was a pretty wonderful thing, but they didn't think it was wonderful. It wasn't a miracle necessarily, but it was marvelous. And so he had cleared the temple and made the religious elite afraid. And then, as Mark chapter 11, verse 18 says, they were afraid and then they were mad. <laughs> they were afraid of Jesus and they were mad at Jesus. And so they took out... and. So rather than responding in faith, they responded with fury, and they're they're angry with Jim, with him, with him. And then it wasn't just the miracles, but it was what the children said. Now consider, here are the highly educated religious teachers who know the law and everything, and then here are the children again as we saw when we studied that passage earlier that the children are also despised and they're supposed to be seen and not heard and the children are crying out hosanna to the son of david a clearly messianic designation they're designating him as the messiah literally saying messiah save us so hosanna means save now and here the upstanding, religious-educated, highly-religious-educated people look down their nose and say, we can't have that. And they say, do you hear what they're saying? I mean, they're quoting the same passage that we saw in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus entering the temple and the multitudes is crying out, Hosanna, Psalm 118 and verse, uh, what is it, verse 26. And they're so entrenched in their unbelief that they will not accept this of Jesus and they say do you hear what they're saying about you they're calling you the Messiah literally is what I mean they're inferring and Jesus response should cause every one of us who read this text to stop now don't look at me look at the text Matthew chapter 21 and verse 16 and and they, and, he, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. I hear it loud and clear. And not only do I hear it, but I want you to know they are dead on. Now that's not what he said. But what he said is, he quoted, he quotes this marvelous passage here in verse 16, and he said, yes, and then he says, have you never read, now who's he talking to? The highly educated religious leaders. Like, have you never, read? you ever been to a ball game and the official misses a, 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 a blatant call? I mean, that's like, the, this is so obvious. And you go, duh, are we watching the same game? Well, I'm sorry, you might not do that. I, I may not say it, but I think it sometimes. Okay? You know? It's like, he's saying, have you not read? You scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders, have you not read? What, what were they supposed to read? Out of the mouths of infants and babes and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. Wow praise for yourself. This is a he's saying I'm the fulfillment of Psalm 8 verse 2. He's saying, yeah, they're saying hosanna save now, which is something that God himself would receive the praise for, and I'm saying they are absolutely correct. I am the Messiah, God in the flesh, and you should know this. Jesus declared himself to be the messianic fulfillment, and Jesus validated their statements of the children, and he verified his true identity, accepting the praise that only God should receive. I wonder, have you accepted him as your Messiah? He's saying, I'm the Messiah. The question each of us is forced to answer, I think, if we look at this text honestly, is, okay, he says he is, do I believe it? He's proving it, and he's proclaiming it. But do we accept him? Do we reject him as the king, or do we receive him as our Savior? Do we acknowledge that He alone is God incarnate and that I am a sinner and my sin condemns me to an eternity apart from Him? But He went to the cross and died in my place so that if I would trust in His death and resurrection in my place, then I will be saved from my sin, the condemnation that I deserve because of His mercy and grace. That's what He is declaring. I am the Messiah. What are they going to save? Save now from what? our sin and condemnation. Eternity apart from Him. Accept Him as our Savior. And then, verse 17, He goes, okay, He left. Deal with it. I think it's kind of funny. but You don't have to think it's funny, but He's like, okay, I'm leaving. You deal with it. I'll be back tomorrow. He didn't say that, but He's coming back tomorrow. And so we see that Jesus... By clearing the temple, our holy king confronts the irreverent. Now, by curing the disabled, we see our savior king confronts those who are indignant. And finally, we see in the last section here that our, by cursing a tree, <laughs> our sovereign king confronts the insincere. There are three aspects of, of christ 's divine authority that are evident here the next day as we move into the section verses eighteen through twenty two that, that confront insincerity unbelief and teach us to be greater dependers on God now the the passages seems to be out of order it seems to be not dis, not connected but first of all it want us to look at Jesus divine authority is displayed as in verses 18 and 19. And many of you know the story. He went the next day, he got hungry on the way, you know, needed some breakfast on the way to the temple, and he saw a fig tree that had leaves on it, so he went over to the fig tree, didn't have any fruit on it. He says, You're done. No more, no more, no more tree. Not not no more fruit, just no more tree. Okay, so that's that's the that's the setup there. And what's going on? Well, okay. It's a lot of debate about this passage, but here, in uh, my understanding, which is limited only what I've read, okay, a fig tree will will produce like a, a fruit bud, okay. Then it will produce leaves. Then the fruit bud will fall, and the fig will come back. So when Jesus saw the the tree with leaves. He would have assumed that there was at least a fruit bud on the tree, okay? And you can eat the fruit buds. I guess they're not very good, but you can eat them. So you, he would have he would have thought that. So he went there, and there was no fruit bud on the tree, and and then that's why, uh, and then there were no figs because the figs come after the fruit bud. That's why Mark, in his account, says it wasn't the season for figs. Well it wasn't yet the time for the figs because the buds had fallen, the figs hadn't, hadn't come unreplaced. It. And so Jesus is like, okay, he, he curses it. Well, is he just having a temper tantrum? I mean, that's how you read it. If you just read the normal say stuff, just throwing a fit. Jesus, This is like when Jesus is supposed to be under control, self-control, you know, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Now Jesus is having a hissy fit because there's no tree, no fruit on the tree. No! This is intentional. Jesus cursed the tree. Elsewhere in the Bible, the people of God are under judgment. It's compared to a fig tree without figs. Okay, uh, you can write this down if you want. You look it up: Isaiah thirty-four four and Jeremiah eight thirteen. So the encounter that he has with the fig tree really should take us back to his clearing of the temple. Because what's intended for him, what I think he intends, is it's a parable. It becomes a parable pointing to what was happening among God's people that was evidenced in the temple. They had the foliage, right, of fruitfulness for God. But there was no fruit, they only had spiritual barrenness. And so his clearing of the temple becomes manifest in this picture form of his. Cursing of the fig tree. Because the worship that they were offering is just like what he found in this fig tree. There was tree leaves, but there was no fruit. They had outward visible signs of fruit, but inwardly they were spiritually barren. And so he says, you're done. It was a a jolting reminder of the judgment that awaits those who pretend to worship God. It's a strong indictment, I think, to pretenders and posers. And then so his his appearance in the temple takes uh, you know it took a kind of a uh, a turn. Cuz the P- prophet Malachi said he would come to cleanse the temple. Well, he didn't really come to he didn't really cleanse it here. He cleared it. <laughs> he cursed it. He cursed the pretenders in it like a fig tree. And likely likely hinting at the the demise of the temple that's coming uh, after his you know, in 70 A.D., but when Jesus died on the cross, you remember in Matthew chapter 27, we'll get there eventually, what happened? The, the veil of the temple was what? Torn in two, because no longer was the temple the means whereby you accessed relationship and, 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 and God, but it was through the person and work of Jesus. So he's, he's, he's laying the groundwork here for something greater than the temple is here, who makes access to God available to all who believe through his death and his burial and his resurrection. Secondly, Jesus' divine authority it dismayed the disciples. I never, I never cease to be dismayed at our disciples because, like, well, how did he do that? I mean, this is the guy, you know, he turned to water to wine, you know, he, he uh, uh, calmed the sea. Uh, how many times did he change the bread? You know, 5,000 fed, 4,000 fed, you know, uh, all this stuff. And how did he do that? It's amazing. They're dumbfounded that he withered it immediately. But again, don't miss the picture. The withering immediately is the the judgment upon pretenders and posers, I think, if the connection is, is correct. But it happened immediately, and he has the power, the authority, sovereign God to enact this judgment. So don't miss the point, but also don't miss the power. I wonder. We think we serve an impotent God. How is He going to do that? I mean, oh no, how's how's He going to rescue my family member uh, who doesn't know Jesus? How is He going to deal with my financial situation? How, how's it, what, what's going to happen to me physically? God's not able. What about the, our church? You know, can, can God help us be effective and fruitful for the cause of the kingdom? I wonder if we have this anemic view of God. We fail to look at the Psalm 33. He says, by the word, in verse 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of there by the breath of his mouth. He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. One of my favorite passages is Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 it says, And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. Well, <laughs> oh, makes you feel good, doesn't it? Um, I'm a. I'm nothing. But he does, according to his will and now get this, in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the Earth, so that no one can say to him, "What are you doing?" You ever say that to God? <laughs> Remember, you're nothing. Or stay his hand. It's like, "No, I can't say, God, why are you doing this?" Well, I can, uh, but it's not helpful, because I'm the creature. And he is the creator. Our sovereign God is in control. And he is in charge. And we better, better grasp it. And if we don't, we don't have to grasp it. But what a blessing to grasp it. So that when we pray, we know that as he told these disciples. That, that's the last thing. That he, not only that, but he conveyed his authority. He says, oh, by the way, just ask. I, again, he didn't say that. I'm kind of embellishing it a little bit. But he says, look. If you have faith, if you do not doubt, that's what he says, if you do not doubt, you can do even this. You could shrivel the fig tree. You could even move mountains. Not literal mountains, but big rocks that we never thought possible to happen for us as a church. And the plurals, there are plurals here. You, 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 you. So it's the church of God. What are we praying, asking God to do great and mighty things for with at Creekside Church and through Creekside Church, missions around the world, ministry in our own community. What are we praying and asking? I'm asking you to think about this and pray about this. I've been praying about it. Do we believe that God can use us as a small church body to impact Liberia, Romania, Southeast Asia, the metro? with the gospel of Christ, to see people come to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior, to see nations brought to people from different nations brought into salvation because that's God's heart, is for the nations. It's not just for one nation, but the nations in our own personal lives. We could trust God to give us boldness to share the gospel with our friends and our family and our neighbors. We could trust God to take care of us physically. We could trust God to work in our children's heart to draw them to Jesus. It says in verse 22: In all things you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive them. We have unimaginable power. As Paul said in Ephesians 2:20, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. To him be glory in church and in Christ Jesus. This is not an endorsement of a name and claimant. I'm going to make this abundantly clear. It's not. You just tell God what you want and it's going to happen. Uh, no, remember Daniel 4.35? We are nothing. We don't ask God Why? We pray in faith, believing. But he says, if you do not doubt, we pray according to his will. God never answers a prayer that is inconsistent with his will, his way, his word, or his purpose. So some stuff we should just not ask for. It doesn't mean any, you know, it violates all that. And some stuff we ask for, he's not going to give us. Because it's not according to his purpose, his will, his word, his way for us. But he has power to answer our prayers, to reconcile, to bring revival in America, to reverse Roe versus Wade. God is able. Is he willing and wanting? That's not my concern. My concern is to pray and to beseech the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up workers to go into the harvest. Jesus proves, I think, his divine authority. And he condemns religious hypocrisy through these examples. Clearing the temple, curing disease and disability, and finally cursing a tree. He proves who he is, and now it's up to us to respond. I wonder, if you're here, you're listening, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he's inviting you. Don't suffer the judgment of the cursing of the fig tree, but experience new life in me. Jesus, not me. Jesus. Through turning from your sin and trusting in Him. You have meaning and purpose in this life. Don't pretend to be a believer. Trust Christ today. And for us as believers, what a joy. What a joy to serve a God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to His power which works mightily within us. Do we praise Him? For his mercy? Do we ask him to purge the pretense from our life? Do we practice compassion? I, I, I'm not as compassionate as I know God wants me to be and caring. We pray that God would give us hearts for people who are hurting and need, they need Christ. You know, you get on social media, and just get ticked off at people. It's like, And, I'm sorry, they need Christ. And I know better than them if I'm just ticked off at them. Because I have Jesus, and I want them to know Christ, and they will know the freedom, and they'll know liberation, and they'll know purpose and meaning that transcends this puny planet. They need Christ. We need to share it with them. And do we pray expectantly? I mean, man, you think about these verses like, do I pray that way? Am I praying for my kids? That God would just transform their hearts? am Am I praying for a church that we'd be useful for the kingdom in powerful ways? For Christ. Praying for our families, our loved ones. And you know, When Jesus went to the cross, which we're getting there, you know, we're close. He went to the cross. We see here he cleared the temple, right? Then he cursed the temple pretenders. And soon he's coming to, in the text, he's already done this, but to replace the temple. To become the mediator, the one through whom we get to God, so that we become the temple of God. And as we, as we take bread and as we take the cup, we're celebrating. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we're declaring his death until he comes. His death, his burial, his resurrection, and all of the power And that comes and so that he is the mediator and we become the temple if we put our faith or our trust in Christ. So when we take the bread and cup. And every one of you who are here this morning who know Jesus as your Lord and Savior are invited to do so. But I I would challenge you to take a moment or two to examine your heart and to get right with God so you don't eat or drink in an unworthy manner these elements. And rejoice. Reflect first and then repent and then rejoice in what it means to be a child of God. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus. God, I know that I need your work in me. I thank you that you've redeemed me. I pray for those who don't know you that they would see the desperate state in which they're in, that they are objects of your wrath, and that they would turn from their sin and trust you as their Savior, experience new life within. And those of us who know you, I pray that we would seek to grow in you and mature in you And rejoice that you confront religious pretenders and you receive all who would call upon you in faith and that you would give us grace and courage and boldness to live for you. Help us to repent of our sin as believers, knowing that you have forgiven it and to take these elements with gratitude and joy. We pray in Jesus' name.